I've been to the casino before, Carla. <laughs> I've never put on my fanciest duds to walk in there, and they were happy to take my money. You don't get your hair done before you go to the casino every time? I Maybe that's my problem. Yeah. I should, I I should mean, go do that. It probably is, yeah. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode. It is going to be our fourth and final episode in our Tom Cruise series. Oh my God, are we done with Tom Cruise yet? Please, can we be done with Tom Cruise? We are done. If you've missed it, you can go back and check out our shows on Jerry Maguire, The Firm, and Cocktail. But today, we're wrapping things up with the 1988 Best Picture Oscar winner, Rain Man. That is what we're talking about today. Did you like this movie? Um, I've only seen it a few times. And I have to say that upon this most recent rewatching, I was a little disgusted with some of Tom Cruise's portrayal. He was pretty offensive. I realized they're supposed to show some growing up from him and, and a bit of education about how to handle this surprise brother he's identified. But that that didn't really warm my heart. I think some of the blackjack stuff is a little iffy. But <laughs> We're going to get into it. I mean, it's Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. you got two really, two ta- really talented actors. Dustin Hoffman won an Oscar for his role. So, I mean, there's that. I do think it is a well-put-together film. It does get sweet towards the end. I have done some, a little bit of, like, nosing around online to see what the autism community thinks about this film as we sit here today. Um, And I got some mixed reviews. I think some people thought that it was a very heartwarming portrayal, you know, maybe they certainly got some things wrong. Maybe it's a little bit stereotypical, but some people liked it. Some people didn't. What I've read was that it's not really a portrayal of autism. It's this autistic savant, which is a very uncommon combination. And it sort of caused a lot of people to think, oh, well, you know, someone who's autistic, well, do they have any special capabilities like Dustin Hoffman did? And and that's not realistic. Yeah. So we're big fans of Saturday Night Live. And Amy Schumer was on very recently, and she is married to someone who has autism. And she did a joke in her monologue about how people just still don't really know how to interact with a lot of folks who have autism. And uh, her joke was, should I like throw some sticks on the ground and let him count them? Would he like that? (laughs) Would that be good for him? Uh, Which is obviously pretty ridiculous. It's, I think that comes directly from Rain Man, right? Like that cultural reference is still in our vocabulary today. 246 toothpicks, Carla. Yeah, there is a scene where toothpicks uh, fall onto the ground and he's able to count them instantaneously, uh, which is actually a thing I have learned. It's called subitizing. So most humans can look at a very small quantity of things, probably up to about five to 10, I would say for most people, and not have to actually like sit there and count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You you see it and you instantly know how many there are? Yeah. I mean, certainly two, right? Certainly three, four, five. Like for most people, there is some number where counting is not required. And that skill just levels up for some people who have um, savant syndrome. So it's pretty amazing. There are people who just have these incredible abilities. And I want to make sure that we talk about the guy who is kind of the inspiration for Dustin Hoffman's character in Rain Man. Are we talking about uh, Dennis and Randy Quaid, who they thought would play these parts? You're kidding. Oh my God, I can't see either of them doing that. Oh my God, I feel like that would have been so much worse. Yeah. Uh, that was actually the plan when they were writing the screenplay, but seriously, <laughs> oh, no. who is this based on? Okay, so there was a guy named Kim Peek who was born in 1951. And he was just this incredible human. He actually did not have autism. He was originally misdiagnosed as having autism, um, but he did have savant syndrome and was just this incredible human being who had astounding capabilities. So he could read books and memorize them just about instantaneously. He also apparently had the ability to read two pages at a time, one with his left eye and one with his right eye. I mean, if that doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. Uh, it's estimated that he read and memorized 12,000 books during his lifetime. 
That is quite the feat. And he only lived to be 58 years old. He passed away in 2009. So that is an astonishing number of books to read in a lifetime. Apparently, he was just someone who really loved knowledge for knowledge's sake and just was able to really win the hearts and minds of a lot of people. So after Rain Man aired, came out, whatever that, aired, I feel like it's, it's on TV Netflix, thing. right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a 2022 way of looking at it. This is a 1988 film. Yeah, after Rain Man was in theaters, there was sort of this like outpouring of love for Kim Peek. And he and his father, who apparently had a very close and heartwarming relationship, um, went on the speaking tour. And another heartwarming fact, they never accepted one single penny for any of their um, public appearances that they made. And it's estimated that he talked to over 2 million people and just really had an impact on you know, people becoming more accepting of folks with differences. And so it's a sweet story, I think. I hope. I, I sort of have this like fear in the back of my brain that maybe he was exploited a little bit. But let's just hope that it's all sunshine and roses and that's not what going on, what was going on. When he went on tour, did he fly or did he drive everywhere? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So one of my one of the more interesting things in the movie is they take this road trip back from Cincinnati to Los Angeles because Raymond is uncomfortable flying. He's afraid of all the accidents and the, the horrible history that most airlines have of, of jet plane accidents, except for one, Qantas, who actually has had multiple crashes, but I think not <laughs> since the 1950s. Okay. Anyway, he's the old, that's the only airline that he would be interested in flying at the time. Well, at the time... Airlines were showing movies on their flights. Oh, no. Could you believe that basically every airline except for Qantas totally deleted that whole section of scenes talking about their own poor safety records? Oh, that feels like some 1984 Big Brother editing kind of crap. (laughs) I'm not a fan. I mean, I I see it. I kind of get it, right? If you're on an airplane with United and they're talking about the crash that happened just a few years ago that killed 500 people... It may not be the most pleasant thing to have for <laughs> other passengers at 30,000 feet. Mean, yeah, I suppose you could call it a safety thing, right? You don't want people panicking when you're in the air. But mostly they didn't want to lose business. Yeah, that that's probably the case. So let's do a quick plot summary for anybody who maybe hasn't seen this movie since 1988 or thereabouts. So Tom Cruise is kind of the main character of the movie, and he plays kind of a a little bit of a shady car salesman. He seems to have his own business where he's selling really, really expensive cars. And he gets a phone call at the very beginning of the movie that his father has passed away and that he needs to come home for the funeral and for the reading of the will and the distribution of his father's estate. And in the course of that, it comes out that Tom Cruise has a secret brother whom his father has been keeping him from him for many, many years. I think Tom Cruise is probably supposed to be in what, like his late 20s, early 30s or so. Um, so he is like well into his life and has absolutely no idea that he has a brother. That brother is played by Dustin Hoffman, who, as we've said, is the autistic savant. And the story unfolds of the two of them just kind of getting to know one another and some drama about which of them is going to inherit the father's estate. Well, as Carla said, Tom Cruise is a car dealer and he's gotten himself into a little trouble. Let's dig into our first clip and hear what's going on. Now, I told you I've never dealt with these Lamborghinis before and yet you assured me that you could deliver these cars within that time frame. Well, uh, don't, don't tell me that because I'm not even listening. Well, I'll explain that to my swing loan. I'm sure it'll be very sympathetic. I'm into him for 200000 That's 1000 my friend. Three zeros. I got all my money tied up in these cars and if I don't get my money out, I am over. I am finished. Do you understand that? But fucking EPA. The whole world is choking on smog and they're going to correct the situation by keeping my four cars off the road? Well, four... So, that's really complex to hear. He's in a warehouse with uh, two other employees that are part of his team trying to figure out what's going on. And it was kind of confusing if you weren't paying attention to the exotic car market in the 1980s. Oh, I was totally paying attention to that. I understood this clip perfectly. Okay. Well, Carla, can you tell (laughs) us about the gray market? Um, Yeah, it's where you buy clothes in various shades of 
gray. Oh, I think we, you might be talking about a different gray market. So what, I, Yeah, I don't understand what the heck is going on from this clip. So, so please explain. So Tom Cruise has these four Lamborghinis that he has bought and imported to the United States and is going to sell to buyers. There are multiple ways to bring a car into the United States. There's the traditional way from the manufacturer through a dealer where the car is designed to be driven here in this country and is in alignment with all of our laws and rules. And when manufacturers do this, they do a little bit of arbitrage. They do a little bit of price management. Maybe the price for the car in Italy is not the same as the price for the car in the United States because of different market demands. Maybe it's substantially more expensive here because they can sell it that way. Well, the gray market is an alternative path to take your car uh, to market. And essentially what you can do is buy it and do some of the arbitrage yourself. Buy it in a country where it's a lower cost, import it here. And then there are a bunch of rules and procedures that sort of exist to protect that arbitrage opportunity for the original manufacturer, um, like the EPA. What he's talking about here is these cars weren't designed to be driven on U.S. roads. There are rules that are in place in the United States that aren't in place in other parts of the world. If you bring a car in this way, you have to go make sure it passes all the tests. His didn't. He didn't get it uh, modified correctly. There's a big problem, and he is in a bit of trouble. Yeah, that does not sound good. So, so this gray market existed. It was pretty prominent in the 80s. There were more than uh, 10,000 cars a year every year in the 80s. I think like 1985, 86, something like that. There were over 60,000 cars brought in this way. But as you can imagine, the major car manufacturers saw this eating into their market in a pretty substantial fashion and decided to try to lobby for it, getting it clamped down. And they were successful. I think by 1995, fewer than 500 cars a year were being brought in under this method. And today, almost nothing is. So you're saying this is not a side hustle that I can get into? No, I don't recommend it. Okay. Um, I do love the idea of arbitrage that exists, right? When you see a gap in one market and you can go identify by taking a little risk, usually the opportunity to go sell something else in a different market and solve and serve a need there sounds lovely, but I wouldn't try it with these. I wouldn't try it with a bunch of Lamborghinis, I guess. Okay. Okay. Noted. So the other thing that comes up in this clip is another term that probably a lot of folks aren't familiar with. He mentions that he has a quote swing loan that's outstanding. What the heck is a swing loan, Robert? I'm pretty sure that's when you decide on your front porch that you want some sort of chair that can sway in the breeze, but you can't afford it. Uh-huh. That sounds like a thing. Uh-huh. You go to the bank and they give you a few hundred dollars so that you can get one of those <laughs> swings installed. You know, uh, every time I hear that phrase swing loan, it, I just think in my head swing line, the uh, stapler manufacturer, and it makes me think of office space. Well, Which we're going to cover one of these days, by the way. Okay. I'm guessing my understanding of a swing loan is not all that different than your understanding of a gray market. <laughs> okay. Do you really know what a swing loan is? I mean, it's just a temporary loan that has a higher interest rate than normal, maybe in the 10 plus percentage points kind of kind of thing. It's not intended to be a long-term loan. It's usually secured using some existing collateral until you have some long-term form of financing in place. Yeah, I think that sort of sums it up. So it's more often referred to as a bridge loan, and it comes up most often in the real estate context. So let's say... Like I said, swings. uh (laughs) So let's say that you have a house, and you don't want to live there anymore. You've got your eye on a new house, and you really want to buy it, but you can't afford to buy that new house unless you have extracted all the equity from your current house, right? You can't afford the down payment on the new house unless you get money out of your current one. This sounds like a fairly common problem. Yeah. So what most people do in this situation is make a contingent offer on this this new house, right? They say, hey, we love your house, really want to buy it. Can we make a deal where I'll buy it if and only if I'm able to sell my house and get the money to buy yours? Which, as you can imagine, is not a super attractive thing to the person trying to sell this new house, right? They just want a deal to go through like today and get their money as soon as humanly possible. So adding all these contingencies is not a very attractive thing to a seller. So one potential option to deal with this is to get a bridge loan to bridge the gap, right? 
So you can't afford the down payment on the new house. You go get a loan for a short amount of time at a higher interest rate, like you said, and use that to buy the new house. So now you are the proud owner of two homes. You're really trying to sell that first one, hoping it gets done any day now. But if it doesn't get done before your bridge loan becomes due, then you're in kind of a rough spot, right? You're looking at making multiple pretty hefty payments on those loans. So it is a strategy that you can employ, but I would do it very, very carefully. Yeah, it seems like it's going to put yourself put you in a pressure situation where you need to accept a suboptimal deal in order to avoid a cash flow nightmare, right? You could have a mortgage on the original house. You could have mortgage payments kicking in on the new house. And then you could have payments on your bridge loan as well, right? Correct. That is correct. That's a, that's a painful situation to be in. No one's going to be excited about that. So yeah, it really does have you over a barrel in the process of trying to sell house number one. So that's a rough position to be in. It just seems like you're setting yourself up for being in a position of needing to take a deal that is not the right deal. Yeah, I very much agree. And really the only way that you get yourself into this situation is if you have your eye on some new house that you can't afford to buy without tapping into your home equity, right? So my advice would be, let's just rein those expectations back in, right? I know people fall in love with houses, but real estate is an enormous part of your overall expenditures in life. And making sure that you get those big things right is just intensely important. It's so much more important than like the daily latte factor, whatever people talk about. Getting your big three right, right? So they, so they call the big three real estate, transportation, and food. Those are the places that most people spend the most money. So making the right decisions on those big three things, especially real estate, which is the biggest of the big three, is just critically important. Depends on how many Lambos you're buying. I suppose that is true. <laughs> that is a very good point. So in the movie, Tom Cruise's character, Charles Babbitt, is clearly in some financial strife, right? He's get, not getting these cars through the EPA. He has people that have paid him down payments for these cars and his creditors are coming for his bridge loan money. Um, he gets a call that his father dies and goes to Cincinnati to attend the funeral. And then after the funeral, he's invited by his father's attorney back to the father's home to go have them read the will together. And our next clip is a, a snippet of that engagement. I hereby bequeath to my son, Charles Sanford Babbitt, that certain Buick convertible, the very car that unfortunately brought our relationship to an end. Also, outright title to my prize-winning hybrid rose bushes. May they remind him of the value of excellence and the possibility of perfection. As for my home and all other property, real and personal, these shall be placed in trust in accordance with the terms of that certain instrument executed concurrently Herewith. What does that mean, the last part? What does that mean? It means that the estate, in excess of $3 million after expenses and taxes, will go into a trust fund for a beneficiary to be named in this document. Who, who is that? Who no, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Now, I'm sorry, son. I can see that you're disappointed. Disappointed? Why should I be disappointed? I got rose bushes, didn't I? I got a used car, didn't I? What's his name? Got what'd you call him? The uh... beneficiary. Right, right, beneficiary. He got three million dollars, but he didn't get the rose bushes. I got the rose bushes. I definitely got the rose bushes. Charles. I definitely got the rose bushes. <laughs> Are those rose bushes gonna give him the money he needs to fix his struggling car business? Yeah, I I really doubt it. However, this did make me curious whether there is any such thing as like a super valuable plant in the world. And it turns out there is. Apparently there's some kind of orchid that has sold at auction for just over $200,000. So not too shabby for a little plant. What does one do with a $200,000 orchid? I mean, if it were us, we would kill it. <laughs> that is very true. I have been given an orchid as a gift in the past. It didn't go real well. It didn't last very long. So if someone gave me a $200,000 orchid, oh man, I would be sweating it. I would I could, not be happy about that gift. I could certainly picture there being some sort of genetically modified crop that is worth that kind of money, oh, right? Because there's a lot, of, a lot of science and engineering that's going to go into finding the 
the carrot that's got a 10% larger yield or some sort of, you know, resistant to pests banana. Yep. That, I mean, that sounds like a valuable thing. We should get right on our horticultural uh, skills, make, make that happen. How much do you think you'd have to pay someone to take our flowers? <laughs> I mean, we've done okay recently. We uh, we xeriscaped our front yard recently, and those flowers are doing all right. Also, I'm still enjoying all the lovely tomatoes that my garden produced this year. So, I mean, I'm, I basically have a green thumb. Okay, That's well, what I'm saying. let's uh, we better update our will. Uh, yeah, those tomatoes are going to be super valuable someday. Okay, so the plants are not worth very much. It is kind of a middle finger to Charlie Babbitt here that he is getting these roses because apparently he kind of resented his father for spending so much attention and time on these roses and sort of neglecting his son. I thought it was more that their relationship deteriorated over the father getting him arrested when he snuck out and took the car without permission yeah, and left was, him in jail for a couple of days. Yeah, that was also a factor. So uh, they did not have the healthiest relationship. That is pretty clear, which is unfortunate. But I think there are a few interesting things to really dig into here with this clip. So he's got an estate of $3 million. That is after any kind of estate taxes, apparently. There's this sort of throwaway line that that's after taxes. And he would have owed some estate tax in 1988. At the time, the estate tax exemption was $625,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, for a single person. So, yeah, his estate was well over that, and he would have owed some estate tax on top of it. Today, however, he would not even come close to owing any estate tax. So this is something we've touched on a little bit before, but I think it's worth talking about every chance we get because I think there's just such a horrible misconception in the public today about the, the death, death tax. tax. The estate tax has been very cleverly branded as the death tax by people who don't want this kind of tax in place, right? And to me, I just think a lot of folks don't really understand, one, how it works, or two, why it might actually be a great thing for you personally, like to the vast, vast, vast majority of humans out there, if we had a much higher estate tax. So would I die sometime soon? Don't do that. Okay, I'll try not to. What is the estate tax exemption? Are we going to owe a whole bunch of money or are we in the clear? We are very much in the clear, my friend. So currently the estate tax exemption amount is $11.7 million per person. So for a married couple, you're up to $23.4 million. So just to be clear, what I'm saying is unless your estate is valued at over $11.7 million if you're single or $23.4 if you're married... The estate tax is completely and utterly irrelevant to you. You don't even have to think about it. It just doesn't apply to you in the slightest. Carly, you did some estate planning law back in the day, and I thought it was like $5 million per person. Yeah, it was. It jumped from right around $5 million all the way up to a little over $11 million in 2018. And it's been increasing with inflation ever since. It is set to expire, however. There's a sunset provision in this law that says at the end of 2025 or sometime in 2025, I forget when, that exemption amount is going to revert back to an inflation-adjusted $5 million. So So it's going to get cut in half, right? Yeah, it'll be about 6.2 inflation-adjusted in 2025. That's what people are estimating right now. So it is set to go back down. So Um, how many households or estates pay this estate tax these days? Well, what's your guess? Give me a guess. I can't resist. Mm, I do love estimating. I'm going to guess that it is 5 in 10,000. 0.05%. Okay. It's a tiny bit higher than that. It is 0.2% of estates. That so are currently subject to the estate tax with the current exemption laws. So that's 20 in 10,000. Yes, yes. So 20 in 10,000 people are even having to think about the estate tax. Now, the rate that kicks in is 40% over and above the exemption amount. So if you have, as a married couple, 
$25 million in your estate, the amount that's going to get taxed is 1.6 of that, and you're paying 40% of that to the estate tax, and the rest is going completely to your heirs. So as the heirs, you are getting $23.4 million free and clear, and they're getting 60% of that extra $1.6 million. But that's not enough, Carla. It's just not good enough, Robert. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do without it. (laughs) So I think the misconception about how small of a number of people we're talking about that the estate tax um, applies to is so out of whack. I remember um, your grandmother actually asking me before she passed away if the estate tax was going to affect her, and she was nowhere near the exemption amounts at the time. And I mean... I think that is just so widespread because the marketing of this quote death tax has been so effective that people are just terrified that, you know, their heirs aren't even going to have enough to like pay for the funeral or something. And the death taxes are just going to like eat up their estate completely. So I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that we do daylight saving time for the farmers. And I think there's a lot of thought about the farmers when it comes to the estate tax, too, because there are a lot of family-owned farms out there where there's some dream of passing it on to the next generation so that they can go continue their family heritage of farming. And won't this just break up these farms into smaller little things and lead to breaking up of these farms and mega corporations owning all of the farmland in the United States? Yeah, almost certainly not. So this is a very common argument that is thrown against um, having an estate tax in place. So there are two rebuttals to this point. One is that there are measures in place to prevent this kind of thing from happening, to prevent somebody who's inherited a small business or a farm from having to sell it in order to just pay the estate tax and not be able to keep the thing going. One is that there are possible deferral measures in place. You can spread these estate taxes out over a period of up to 15 years if you're smart about it and talk to an estate attorney and get your affairs in order correctly. Another is something called the current use rule that can apply to you. So what this effectively does is allow you to value something for purposes of the estate tax as it is currently being used, as opposed to the maximum amount of profit that you could get out of it. So let's imagine like a small ranch somewhere, or maybe even a decent sized ranch somewhere. I mean, it's going to have to be decent size to even be talking about the estate tax, right? So let's say you've got a ranch somewhere and the land that it sits on is worth a heck of a lot of money because it's in a great place and you could sell it to someone who's going to plunk down a big old resort and just, you know, extract every inch of profit out of that land that they possibly could. But you're not using it like that. You're using it as like a, you know, a ranch or a farm. So you are allowed to value it, not at what its true fair market value is, but as you are actually using it day to day. So that's also going to cut down substantially on the amount of estate tax that you could potentially owe. So there are measures in place And for sure, if you are wealthy enough to have this even be a thought in your head that you could potentially owe these kind of estate taxes over like almost $24 million worth of estate, you should be talking to a lawyer to try to, you know, get do things as effectively as you possibly can to protect small businesses and farms. Okay. Well, I think you told me before this that there are only 70 or so farms in the United States that this could even possibly apply to at current exemption levels. So I think we're probably looking at that wrong, just like daylight saving time if we're trying to think about the farmers. Yeah. So that is the other major rebuttal to this argument about small businesses and farms. So if you are contending that we should be crafting the estate tax around this concern of protecting small business owners and farmers... That's nuts because we are talking about such a tiny number of people. So the number you listed is exactly right. It's estimated that there are like 70 farms in the entire country that could potentially be affected by the estate tax. And overall, including small businesses, we're looking at about three out of every 100,000 estates that could potentially be affected as a small business or farm by the estate tax. 
And that's potentially affected. Again, they could take advantage of these carve-outs that are designed to protect them specifically. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I think where a lot of people have problems with the estate tax is this whole double taxation idea. This money had already previously been taxed when it was earned. I think where that argument kind of falls apart is a lot of times we mentally lump spending with revenue. I mean, in our own personal lives, hopefully we are not spending more money than we make and we're able to sort of manage those sorts of things together. The government, on the other hand, operates at a deficit virtually all the time, right? We're almost always spending more than we take in in the form of revenue. And if we ever want to reverse the course of that and spend less, there's two ways to do it. There are two different levers. One, we could spend less or spend differently. And two, we could make more revenue. And those don't have to go together. I certainly think that the right answer is to increase that revenue. And if we're going to try to do that, I personally want to take it from people who didn't earn it, from some dead person's estate where 11 million and change or possibly 20 million and change is already being passed on with without any cut. And then they still get 60% of the remaining balance. It, it doesn't seem like it's too punishing to the surviving heirs. Yeah. I mean, my feelings on the estate tax boil down to this. We need some form of taxation in this country. There are things that we all agree we need to pool our money together to provide services for, right? So if you accept that as kind of a baseline assumption, let's take that money from a place where it hurts the least. And taking it from somebody who's just, you know, dead, won the birth lottery, right? (laughs) They just came out of the right womb and didn't do anything else to earn that money. That seems like a pretty good place to be taking revenue from as opposed to everyday folks like you and me who are just working and having to pay a portion of our income every single year, every single paycheck, right, to the government. So it's just, it's a balancing act for me. If it's got to come from somewhere, I'd rather take it from heirs who didn't do jack squat to earn it. (laughs) Well, let's take this back to Rain Man. So Tom Cruise doesn't get the money. There's this unnamed beneficiary that happens, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's kind of bizarre. The attorney reads the will to him, and he's really frustrated about only getting the rose bushes, and he wants to know about this other beneficiary. What I thought was fascinating is he goes to the bank in town and says, hey, my dad set up a trust with you. Can you tell me who the trustee is? I don't think that'll work in today's world. We can't just go down to the the friendly local bank and ask them. Actually, I think the name of the building was Cincinnati Trust. So I, I really don't think it would work like that in today's world. But he discovers that his father has put some person at some institution as the trustee over these funds. And he goes there to find out more about it. Eventually learns that he has a brother, Raymond, being played by Dustin Hoffman. And he basically kidnaps his brother. Yeah and takes him away and is trying to go figure out what to do next. But his plan is to try to get his share of that $3 million. Dr. Brennan, it's Charlie Babb. Where are you, son? It's not important. What matters is who I'm with. You have to bring him back, Mr. Babbitt. Do you understand me? It's no problem whatsoever. It'll be $1.5 million. I'm not greedy. Uh, I just want my half. I can't do that, Mr. Babbitt. You know I can't. Just bring him back and bring him back now. This is where he belongs. Let's just, let's just cut through the bullshit, okay? Now, I am entitled to part of my father's estate. If you don't want to cut a deal with me, I'll fly him back to Los Angeles. We'll stick him in an institution out there, and we can, we can have a, a, a custody battle over him. Whew, getting a little heated there. Just demanding 1.5 mil. No big deal. He's not greedy. Yeah, he just wants what he's entitled to, Robert. Just, yeah. that's all. No biggie. The entitlement is pretty bonkers. And I think that's part of the reason why people have such a hard time with uh, estate taxes. There is a sense of entitlement for some of that stuff when I'm not sure it really makes sense. And there definitely shouldn't be any entitlement here by Tom Cruise. He had zero relationship with his father. They were out of communication. He never returned any calls, any letters. He never spent any time with him whatsoever. What did he think was going to happen? Yeah, I... I just can't imagine anybody feeling like they are just absolutely owed whatever money their parents had once they're gone. It just doesn't 
feel right to me. I feel like your parents are their own people and out of love and generosity, they raised you and took care of you and put you out into the world to hopefully stand on your own two feet and to go back to them and be like, uh, you owe me more, bitch. Like, Money, please. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it just feels so, so very, very wrong to me. It doesn't make sense to me that there's some sort of like, my parent has gone, now I'm out a big check kind of mentality. So how do you feel about Tom Cruise using Dustin Hoffman as a bargaining chip? He's, I mean, he's got a ransom, basically. Yeah, this is basically a ransom call. I mean, not basically, it is. This is a ransom call, which is just ridiculous and awful, right? Tom Cruise's character is just a total asshat for the 90% of the movie, at least. Like, He kind of comes around at the end, but it just seems like the worst thing that you could possibly do to your newfound sibling to put him in situations that are seemingly pretty stressful for him speaking well the dad what what the hell is his deal like why did he not talk about the sibling why didn't they ever go visit him together that doesn't make any sense to me yeah that's it's just awful and it's bigoted right i mean they just thought that raymond was different and didn't want him in their lives right i mean that's kind of what it boils down to so yeah there's a lot of bigotry going on i mean tom cruise is pretty bigoted towards his brother at least for most of the movie but after tom cruise leaves it seems like the dad continues to have a relationship with the son yeah well he sees him like once a week right i mean that's well how often do you see your parents carla yeah but i'm a full-blown adult (laughs) we don't live in the same state anymore so i saw them every day when i was a kid well that's fair (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, it just everything about this family dynamic is is awful. The dad separated two brothers, and presumably the mom went along with it. I forget exactly. Uh, she how, died. What, what? Oh, right, they were pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the the dad is just awful, right? He I mean denying these two brothers the chance to get to know each other and be in each other's lives was just despicable. And now Tom Cruise is you know, kind of putting his brother through the ringer to try to squeeze $1.5 million out of the trustee. So here's what I think is interesting. Tom Cruise is like, let's have a custody battle, man. Let's let's fight it out. See who gets to take control of Raymond. And he might actually be able to win that custody battle. But what it seems like he doesn't understand is just because he becomes the person responsible for ensuring Raymond's well-being doesn't mean that he gets access to the money. It doesn't mean that he becomes the trustee, right? His father created a trust, left that money to the the doctor at the foundation, at the hospital in Cincinnati. That guy is the trustee. He has control of the money for Raymond's well-being. And if that means putting him into a similar facility in Los Angeles and paying the bill for that, that's what they're going to do with that money. I don't know why Tom Cruise thinks that the custody battle is going to do anything for him. Yeah, being the caretaker is not necessarily the same thing as being the trustee over his assets, right? So you're absolutely right. There's no guarantee that he's going to get access to it. Another point is even if he were named trustee, that doesn't mean that he gets to just like sweep $1.5 million off the top of that trust and be like, yeah. okay, this part's mine now. I'll Ray- use the rest of it to take care of Raymond. Yeah, Raymond's still a beneficiary, right? It's exactly. all supposed to go for his well-being. Yeah, and it's going to be a pretty tough sell to convince a judge that Raymond is better off if Tom Cruise has $1.5 million to go buy Rolexes and things. So, yeah, it's a, he's, he's just barking up the wrong tree here completely. Do you think they would institute a guardian, a guardian ad litem in order to ensure that Raymond's protected here? Yeah, so if Tom Cruise were to be named the trustee, which in and of itself would be a really difficult thing to do because there does seem to be this conflict of interest, right? You've got this neglected son who's angry about being cut out of the will and you're going to put him in charge of the money. It just, I don't think most judges would, I don't think hardly any judges would go for that. Um, But yeah, even if he were to be appointed, there's going to be somebody in place to make sure that there's like some checks on that ultimate power and that the money really is being used for Raymond's benefit. So it's, Tom, 
it's not a winning proposition for him to be threatening these things on the phone. So Tom Cruise's strategy for getting at the money is to kidnap Raymond. Obviously, that is not a way to do things inside the bounds of the legal system. People have squabbles when wills get opened and the money didn't go the way that they thought it was going to. Surely the right path for him was to try to invalidate this will and this trust arrangement in some kind of way. What are the ways that people can go do that? I mean, is that a successful endeavor? Are there are there really ways that you can go fight that? Uh, absolutely. You can challenge a will on any number of grounds. However, the most fruitful ground that most people rely on is that the testator, the will maker, was not of sound mind when they made the will, right? There's some sort of coercion based argument or something? Yeah. So, I mean, what this typically looks like is you've got somebody who was very, very elderly and maybe they had like a caretaker who was there every day as opposed to the family who was there like every few months just kind of checking in and the person becomes very close with the caretaker and they decide to leave all their money to them instead of the family and the family's like, oh, wait a second, we do not like that result. So then they argue that the testator was, you know, not in their right mind when they made their last will, we shouldn't honor these wishes, or that the caretaker kind of person you know, coerced them that they sort of weaseled their way in in a way that was inappropriate, taking advantage of the mental states of this person. So those are the kinds of challenges that are most likely brought. You can also challenge on technical grounds, right? You do have to dot some I's and cross some T's in pretty much every state in order for a will to be declared valid. Otherwise, you go to the rules of intestate succession, which means... What are the rules when nobody, when there is no valid will, which would probably include Tom Cruise in this case, right? So he could potentially challenge the will, but this guy was wealthy. He had a seemingly good lawyer. There's not likely a very good ground to contest this will. I was going to say he left his money to his son who isn't able to take care of himself. He put it in a trust to be managed by the institution where he lives Seems like a pretty logical, reasonable thing to do. He didn't give a substantial sum of money to his child who he was alienated from. I think you're going to have a hard time getting that turned over. Yep, me too. (laughs) It doesn't seem like a good bet. Well, the movie progresses. They finish their journey or they start getting closer to home and they stop off in Vegas. Tom Cruise has learned about Dustin Hoffman's savant skills and has an idea. He's going to put him to work and help him win some money at the casino. And what do you know? They're successful. Our last clip is a bit of a summary about their their big haul from the casino. Okay, we won $86,000 and some change. Right, Ray? And we... $86,000. $80,000. Refund of the car payments. And I owe, uh, what, what did I say uh, I owe to get the Rolex back? $3,500, six months to, to pay. $3,500. We don't have to pay for room. That's comped. I'm free and clear. I'm going to go take a celebration kiss. <laughs> That's you do that a lot, right? Go take a celebration piss. Carla, so. I don't know that I've ever had a celebratory urination, <laughs> but if I were to declare my dream urination, uh-huh. I think it would be Tom Hanks, A League of Their Own, something like that. <laughs> That that looked like it was very relieving. That that is a good scene. Uh, Madonna times Tom Hanks peeing because he's going for so long. I I don't know if we find out exactly how long he goes, but it's a fun scene. It's a fun scene. It felt very celebratory. Mm -hmm. That's probably my favorite Tom Hanks movie, by the way. P.S. Your favorite Tom Hanks scene? We should do a Tom Hanks series as opposed to a Tom Cruise series next time because... I am real sick of Tom Cruise. Speaking of Tom uh, Hanks, I read recently that the guy from The Terminal that the movie was based on just died recently. Aw, well, that's a bummer. Way to bring the room down, Robert. Well, he <laughs> wanted to do Tom Hanks and not Tom Cruise, so there you go. Okay. All right, here we go. In Rain Man, they win $86,000 at the casino. Yep, counting those cards. That's all it takes. Just get rich quick scheme. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed to win. Happens every time. Okay, so... Our, one of our very first episodes was on the movie 21, 
which is all about blackjack. Go back to episode number five. Check it out. That is the one. So we're not going to rehash that whole thing here. But the thing that just completely blows me away and that I feel like every movie misrepresents about card counting is the edge that you have over the house if you are counting cards and playing perfect strategy is 1%, which I realize is significant over a long period of time. And the edge that the house has over blackjack players in general is not substantially different from that. So the house always wins, obviously it works for them, but it obviously takes a really long time and a big upfront investment in order to capitalize on that 1% edge that you have. That's right. They pawned a Rolex for apparently about $3,500 and they used that money to go gamble with, which means they had an incredibly favorable run of luck in the short term. Not impossibly favorable, especially for how aggressive they may have been betting. I I think the reality is you could, I don't know, let's say they they took $2,000 and brought it to the table. You could go double that up five, six times, and you're there. You're covered. And that happens, right? It's not an impossible series of events to have happen. They obviously weren't trying to bet it quite like that. They were betting when the conditions were favorable, although that only happens, what, like 10% to a quarter of the time to really be able to increase your bet because the odds are in your favor. It, it doesn't really seem to work out the way that they show it in the movies, but hey, it's Hollywood. It's a lot more entertaining that way. Oh, Hollywood, how we love you. (laughs) I do want to add, just for clarity, it is not illegal to count cards, okay? It's a common point of confusion in any movie that shows blackjack, but not illegal, just frowned upon. The casino does have the right to say, you're too good for us, you're an advantage player, and we are not a fan of having you play here, and you're banned, and, and you can't come in anymore. But it's not illegal. You're not going to jail. Yeah, I mean, it seems like... If you are focused enough, I do. One of the other things that bugs me about this is that it's presented as though Dustin Hoffman is uniquely qualified to do this because of his savant capabilities. Nobody can count into a six-deck shoe. Yeah, that's a direct quote from the film. But as we talked about in our 21 episode, that's really not the case, right? It's very basic math that's going on here. So really what you just need is an ability to focus which I will grant you in today's world of like infinite scrolling and like our two second attention spans is not an easy thing to do. But if you can hone that skill and just be someone who's very focused and able to keep track of the cards that are going by, you can count cards too, right? Like it's just very simple arithmetic. So what I love about the blackjack portion of this movie is that they didn't have any cash. They didn't have substantial funds to go take to the table. So Tom Cruise pawns his Rolex watch, gets a, apparently about $3,500 or so for it. Um, one, why did he have a Rolex watch? I mean, he's a struggling businessman. His car business is not doing particularly well. And then two, why do they take the money and instead of bringing it all to the table as seed money for their gambling venture, they go on a makeover? <laughs> They get matching tailored suits, the same pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. I think they get their hair done. Like they, yep. they go down, they ride down the escalator and they look like a, a set of twins or something. I've been to the casino before, Carla. <laughs> I've never put on my fanciest duds to walk in there and they were happy to take my money. You don't get your hair done before you go to the casino every time? I, maybe that's my problem. Yeah. I should, I, I mean, should go do that. It probably is, yeah. Um, if you haven't been to a casino outside of Vegas, like a casino in other places, you should check it out. It is a really <laughs> depressing place. You, I guarantee you no one there is in their, their finest clothing. Yeah, I, that is such a hilarious scene to me. We have this like classic makeover montage. Like, I, you can't go play yeah. at the big money table unless you're dressed swanky. I mean, it just kills me. It's the whole nine yards too, right? Like they buy really nice shoes. They buy really nice suits. Matching, by the way, for what reason, yeah. right? Yeah, I don't know why they had to match. They could certainly <laughs> get nice suits in different colors. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. But uh, I don't know. That is just such a ridiculous concept to me that you gotta you gotta look your best in order to go hit those gambling tables. I feel like I've seen people in pajamas at casinos before. Like it's not this is not like a high class joint necessarily. There's one requirement. 
bring the money. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. what they want you to do at the casino. Yeah. Bring your money and gamble with them. They don't really care how nice you look. I also think if you are counting cars, as you pointed out, the casino is free to come tap you on the shoulder and say, GTFO, right? But you're probably less likely to have that happen if you're like an inconspicuous looking person, right? You might slide under the radar for just a hair longer if you're not just attracting a ton of attention to yourself. So it just, it's the silliest thing ever. I mean, they clearly were attracting a lot of attention to themselves with the crowd of people around them and, and all that jazz. But yeah, the, the Twinkie look, I don't really get it. <laughs> so he gets this money and he's able to pay off, I think the $80,000 worth of down payments that his four Lamborghini customers paid him. So the bank foreclosed on his swing loan and he lost the cars. So he needed to refund the money. He was in a ton of debt and that's why they were in Vegas using Raymond's special skills. Um, What should he do about this business, right? He's really been struggling. This whole gray market thing can be pretty tough to make work. Well, for starters, he should stop spending thousands and thousands of dollars on watches because this guy's living on the edge, right? He just flat cannot afford to be indulging in these kind of luxuries, it almost seems to me as though he was counting on an inheritance, right? He has been living this lavish lifestyle that he just does not have the bankroll to support. So I kind of wonder in the back of my mind if maybe that was something in the back of his mind. But I mean, he should probably look into selling cars in a more sustainable way, right? Because it seems like he is running into hurdle after hurdle with this gray market. And if he's really into cars, you know, he could potentially like start his own car dealership or go work for a car dealership or do something in the car arena other than just relying on this gray market to continue in perpetuity. I think he just wanted to stereotypically make a big fast. And you're right. He had a sense of entitlement that was backed up by a wealthy family that he came from who he thought would help him out if he ran into major trouble. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have that backstop in life, right? It's a good thing for people to have in their back pocket. It is, as long as you can leave the sense of entitlement behind. Yeah, yeah. Nobody likes that. Well, I think that's all we had on this episode. And all we have on Tom Cruise. (sighs) Do you hear angels singing? I feel like I hear angels singing somewhere in the background. It's, okay. very, it's faint, but I hear it. All right. uh, yeah, we're really excited to move on from Tom Cruise. I might have to find a fifth bonus episode. <laughs> oh, no. The Color of Money, Carla. No, no, just no. But Minority Report? We've got lots of good stuff coming down the pipeline, so we're excited to dive into our new episodes. Join us next not. week for Mission Impossible. <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. Well, if I never see Tom Cruise again, it'll be too soon, so... All right. We're moving on. Okay. Tropic Thunder next Tuesday. <laughs> How many Tom Cruise movies do you think you can name? I'm almost out. Okay. Well, that's great. That is the best news I've had all week. Maverick. Top uh, Gun. I was going to say, was Maverick's his name in Top Gun? Not- Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. I can't even, I don't even want to think of them anymore. I'm just, I'm all done with them. Days Mag- of Thunder. See, now I'm doing it involuntarily. Magnolia. The Last Samurai. Okay. All right. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. (laughs) We're cutting it off. We love having you as listeners. And uh, thanks for putting up with us in our Tom Cruise segment. All right, guys. We'll catch you next week. Take care.